So like I said, we're, today we're going to be chatting about women's health and we're going to be talking through three main areas, really. Morning, Christy. Yeah, I can imagine you are very happy to see to see this morning to uh, get through the week. Um, so we're going to be chatting through three main areas when it comes to women's health. Um, the first one is going to be the menstrual cycle. We've already talked about this a fair few times in quite a lot of detail, and I think probably 90% of the team have have been with us for that session. Um, so we, we're gonna kind of go through that a little bit quicker than normal. Then we're gonna chat through PC, PCOS, and then we're gonna quickly touch on the menopause as well. And for each section, we're gonna quickly like look at a little bit of the theory in terms of why things happen, but obviously we're here for, for action, right? We're here to kind of basically get things to put in place. We're not here just to kind of learn, we're here to have practical tips. So obviously, as always, it's gonna be focused on, on those practical tips. Clicker's still not working. Oh well, after you do the old-fashioned thing and use the use the mouse, won't I? Right. So, like I say, menstrual cycle today, women's health, a whole kind of um, a whole host of, of things for us to chat about. Now, on Tuesday, as you know, I went to a session about women's health, and I was I'm going to be completely honest, guys. I was quite shocked. Like I I, kn- I knew from my qualification how little research there was done into women's health, but I didn't realise the, and obviously International Women's Day this year was break the bias. I didn't realise how much bias there was towards male science and not not really that, but how little there was on female health and, and women's health. It's, it's like shocking. So I want to quickly just kind of talk you through the main things here. Um, let's get rid of this. I want to get rid of that. Uh, I'll leave it there. Um, so it's hugely, hugely under-researched. Most of the science, so eight out of 10 studies on biology, whatever you know, whatever part of that is, is done on male participants, whether that's male rats, uh, male cells, hu- male humans. Eight out of 10 studies are male. And when it comes, this is quite worrying, when it comes to drug studies, five, there's a ratio of five to one of male to female studies. And now considering that women are twice as likely to have an adverse reaction to medicine, it's mind blowing that they make up for 20% of trials on female cells and bodies and animals. It's absolutely mind blowing. So you're twice as likely to have an adverse reaction and yet you are one fifth as likely to have had that drug tested on female cells. I think that's right mass wise which is just mind blowing, right? To make it worse, only 2.5% of public government funding is given to reproductive health. 2.5% of all the medical um, research funding is given to reproductive health. Now we are human beings, right? We reproduce. Reproductive health is a huge part of overall health, particularly for women. So it's madness that such a small amount is given to to that. And to be honest, I'm gonna I'm gonna be honest. I was I was there, and I had a quick flick through the through the kind of attendees, um, and they kind of gave the male attendees a bit of a shout out because obviously it was predominantly female attendees, and there were there were maybe a handful of guys there, and it it was quite as one of those few guys. I was quite embarrassed about you know the bias toward towards like male science. It's just. It's mind-blowing. We know that women's health is more complicated, generally speaking. There's more to it, I mean. There's more facets and factors than male health, and yet 
it's so under-researched, underfunded, all of that stuff. And they and in in that they kind of spoke about the two point five percent of funding is given to reproductive health, and yet one in three women will suffer with either a gynecological gynecological I'm gonna try and read that gynecological there you go gynecological or reproductive health problem in their lifetimes one in three so 33 percent of women are going to go through something um a health issue related to their reproductive health or their gynecological gynecological health there you go and they spoke about this really interesting thing um about invisible sports women so it's even worse in sport and thankfully it's slowly getting better but because the lack of focus on on females in sport there is a lack of understanding about for example how the menstrual cycle impacts on your on your sport performance or in your exercise performance so there's all things that we're going to talk through now of course you know women's health is going to your your health is going to impact you in every single way you know hormones are going to be the root cause of pretty much everything we talk through today it all comes back down to hormones and your hormones are going to impact on everything your metabolism your bones heart health gut health brain health everything your sleep is a massive massive one i know i've been speaking to quite a few of you about sleep recently and your hormones and your menstrual cycle and other parts will completely there is no there's no doubt there is a very distinct link between your hormones and your sleep so these are things that we need to consider now throughout your lifetime you'll have multiple physiologies right from pre-puberty to puberty to adulthood um through to kind of you know late adulthood menopause and things if you think about the changes that happen it happens for males as well to an extent but nowhere near as as um impactful in your day-to-day life as it is for females and you think about it you have multiple physiologies throughout your life and then you have multiple physiologies throughout your month as well right because you have, as you know, if you've attended the menstrual um, cycle training before, you've had you have kind of four distinct phases. You could even break it down to five phases if you want to split the the second half up into three parts. Um, and that's going that's basically you have three different physiologies, three different body systems. Uh, sorry, four different body systems throughout that month. So it is quite complicated. There is a lot going on, but we're going to break it down today. We're going to look a little bit about the theory and very much on the practical tips that you can go away and put in place. So make sure you've got pen, paper and something nice to drink. Again, you know, like we say, effects on everything, sleep, I'll put that bit twice. Don't know why I put that bit twice. Um, but particularly after puberty, females are very, very likely to, um, I can't remember the exact statistics, so don't quote me on this, but it was a large portion of females who would experience insomnia kind of post-puberty, so like early adulthood into adulthood, um, would experience uh, some insomnia throughout that kind of time. Now, you think about sleep, how important it is on everything else, hunger hormones, stress levels, all of that other stuff, you can see how there can be quite quite a few complications along this. Females are twice as likely to develop depression and anxiety than men are. And when we talk about kind of health today, we want to focus not just on the reproductive health. We want to focus on, hey guys, a few more people joining us. When you join, just let me know who's watching. Um, and if you haven't done it before, click the Ecamm link, give yourself permission, and then I'll be able to see your names. We'll be able to chat for as we go through. So we're not just going to focus on reproductive health today. We're going to focus on whole body health, and that's really, really important. Right. Okay, I need to remember my clicker's not working. So let's get into the menstrual cycle. As well as, well as just for the menstrual cycle, as well as for, for everything today, 
I am not a female. I do not experience these changes in my body. Hey Beth. Awesome, yep. Cool. Um, so I don't experience these changes in my body. This is not my anecdotal experience. I'm going to be talking you through textbook stuff. However, as you'll notice many, many times throughout today's session, you are not a textbook. So I'm going to talk you through the very generalized textbook side of things. Obviously, I can't relate in terms of personal experience. I can relate in terms of friends, family, that kind of stuff. And obviously, the, you know, probably the 80, 85, 90 plus female teachers that I've coached. I can relate to, to you through those through those channels, but not for on a personal level. So the big thing to know is that I am talking very scientifically today. I will be sticking to a script because I want to make sure I get the details right. And I'm not going to be using obviously analogies and personal examples because it's not it's not really appropriate. So the big thing to kind of notice, um, yeah, it's got to be done, Beth. Some some people get really kind of find it quite um not insulting, it's not the right word, but honestly, some people, I've had it in the past where some people say like, you know, how, what do you know? So I want to disclaim, I do not know through personal experience. I know through qualification and studying and trainings and webinars and all that good, good stuff. Um, so it's hugely, hugely individual, right? It's, it's what I'm going to talk through today. You're probably going to be able to take a bit from here, a bit from there and a bit from there and think, cool, that's me. Loads of it will not apply because you are a very, your, your, your physiology, your body systems are hugely, um, individual and so is your kind of hormonal regulation so it's really important and this is going to change for your lifetime think of you when you were 10 in terms of hormones in your body think of you when you were 15 think of you when you were 20 25 35 you know and, and that and then kind of into the futures future you're you're gonna have experienced these kind of big changes in these what we call like um hormonal milestones throughout your life so what we talk through today might be true today in 10 years time it might have changed so that, that's really important Everyone's experience is going to vary. It's a generalized overview. We, you are not a textbook. Somehow, this is still a taboo. Um, and I purposefully had a, had a not a great experience of posting about this on social media. And I learned very, very quickly that you do not talk to people about their hormonal health and their menstrual cycle and things like that unless they have asked for it or unless they're a client, basically. I found that out the hard way. Lots of people... It's not taken well. It's uh, it's um, uninvited advice, right? Which is why I don't typically post about it or anything like that because it's just not appropriate. But it's still somehow a taboo subject. Now, you know me. I have no problem talking about the three Ps, right? Periods, poos, and peas. The three Ps that make up, you know, a lot of your kind of... Um, um, a lot of your kind of health markers, if you like, ways that we can tell how your body's functioning, if you're in good health, bad health, etc. So the three P's, you know, that I have no problem discussing P's, P's and periods, no problem at all. But for a lot of people, particularly a lot of men, it's very uncomfortable for, to talk about, which again, is an education and uh, an exposure thing, I think. It shouldn't be, obviously. This should be as normal as talking about, you know, things that men talk about with their kind of, you know, reproductive health and all that kind of stuff should just be all kind of, you know, equal for want of a better word. Now, when we talk about the cycle today, we're going to talk about, again, very, very generalized, the 28 day cycle, textbook cycle with a three to five day period. Um, however, that's not what you're going to experience. Most likely, you're most likely going to experience anything between 21 and 35 days. So like I said, I am going to be whizzing through the menstrual bit and then getting on to the PCOS and the menopause bit. 
So a typical cycle is, like you say, kind of 21 to 28 days. Usually zero to seven days is kind of your menstruation period or menses as it's kind of sometimes referred to in, in some textbooks. Seven to 14 days, you're gonna, and, and that's part of the, um, of the follicular phase, obviously, the first half, if you like. And then the second half of that half, second quarter, is um, kind of seven to 14 days or thereabouts. And this is when your estrogen increases. Now, you'll notice that estrogen is spelt sometimes with an E, I think that's the American spelling, and sometimes with an O-E, okay? From now on, I'm gonna talk about the O-E estrogen. So I would be using the letter O on this one. And then in that third, third quarter, um, we, uh, sorry, right kind of in the middle, sorry, right in the middle, between almost between the halves, we have ovulation, right? And then in the third quarter, our estrogen will drop very, very rapidly once ovulation has occurred, um, and then progesterone is going to increase. Now this increase, this decrease in estrogen and increase in progesterone, and then later the decrease, the more steady decrease in both is going to directly correlate with loads of changes in your body and your physiology, which we'll touch on in a second. And then in that final little bit, that final quarter, both are gonna drop um, quite rapidly, but still more steady compared to the first decrease of estrogen. So that's typically your female cycle. The early follicular, the late follicular, the early luteal and the late luteal. That's kind of four quarters, if you like, split into two halves. Now, you'll see in some kind of studies and textbooks and stuff, it's broken down into five because the luteal phase is quite complicated. As you can see there, it's quite complicated. There's quite a lot of dips and peaks and troughs and stuff. So sometimes you have the early luteal phase, the mid luteal, and then the late luteal, okay? But let's kind of chat through the ovulation and, and, also, and also PMS as well. So that kind of, um, those kind of premenstrual symptoms, if you like. So, the, uh, the phase of kind of ovulation that, that as you can see on the that middle point there kind of day 14 is usually kind of 12 to 24 hours and then we've got some kind of possibility of like up to 48 hours essentially right it's that kind of that middle point here and this is of course when you are most fertile right and guys if i'm I should probably say girls rather than guys but i say guys for everyone uh if any of this rings true untrue your personal experience if you feel comfortable sharing that pop it in the chat, just, you know, we're all we're all friends here. If you're comfortable sharing your experiences and stuff throughout today, please do, because it will bring a lot more anecdotal experience that I can't give because I've never been through this. Now, usually kind of days 20 to 30, so if you've got a classic cycle, kind of that last seven days, you know, 20 to 20, 21 to 28 days, you may experience PMS. And I need to keep saying, you may, you might, you could, because none of this is uh, solidified, right? So there are loads of different symptoms that you kind of might experience from this. Changes in mood, abdominal pain, breast tenderness, anxiety, depression. These things can all be, you can be more susceptible to anxiety and depression during this time, right? For one in three people, it is, um, you know, very, very discomforting. So it's it seriously, um, sorry, sorry, for one in three people, it um, is uncomfortable. So it kind of, you know, you can tell that it's happening for one in three um, and it, you know, it causes you discomfort basically. However, for one in 20 people, it's quite severe and it strongly impacts on day-to-day -day life. So you may have time off work, you may kind of find yourself, you know, getting in and just kind of crashing out because you're so zapped basically. So for one in 20, it's kind of what we could, would call severe symptoms. Again, these are numbers from a limited number of um, scientific studies. If you missed the first part, basically all of this is massively under-researched. 
go back and watch that after. So why do we kind of experience PMS? Why does this kind of happen? Now, there are, again, it's very, very roughly understood. It's not super clear because there have been enough studies done into it. But most theories kind of, um, you know, circle around things like deficiencies, shifts in diet, um, shifts in things like, uh, particularly with minerals like magnesium and zinc and things like that. It could be to do with um, an increase in your body, uh, an increase in energy of your that your body's using. For example, you know when you think about the whole process of this, it is to to grow um, a, a a human. So it's you know if your body is kind of at certain stages, it's going to be more energy intensive. Your body's gearing up, and then often, obviously, more often than not, it kind of then slows down a little bit, right? And then we have our kind of menstruation week. So it all kind of relates to what the process is supposed to be there for. If you do experience, you know, quite full on PMS symptoms, even something like a really decent high dose multivitamin might be really useful. Something as simple as that, you might notice a difference. Now, I use awesome supplements for my multivitamins. If you go into Tesco's and you just grab a multivitamin from the bottom shelf, it's typically underdosed in the important things, in the important minerals and vitamins, because they're the expensive ones. And it's usually overdosed in the cheap, cheap ones like vitamin C. The ones that are cheap to make, they put less in of. They don't actually put it, they don't create these, um, you know, supermarket supplements, I call them. They don't create them in line with the latest research. They they create them in line with their, their pockets and basically. So it's not usually the best dosing. So awesome supplements, you can literally link it to the, you can go on there, you can find the latest research. If you're ever stuck on a supplement, go to examine.com. They give you loads and loads of really good um, information about what's important, what's not, how to save your money, how not to basically create expensive pee pretty much by wasting money on supplements. So let's talk about the two phases then. Like I said, I'm gonna be going quite rapidly through this. The follicular phase can be broken into the early and the late as can both. Now, in both these phases, particularly the follicular phase, you can kind of notice um, some psychological impacts, some psych um, physiological impacts. And again, you know, Christie's gonna be different to Beth's. You know, it's, it's, it's gonna be such a hugely individual thing. This is what may happen. This is a classic cycle. Days zero to seven, particularly coming towards the end of those seven days, you may feel stronger, okay? So this is sometimes coined amongst female athletes as like period strength, because as you come out of your, your, that, your period week, you may start to feel stronger. Your bloatings and cravings may have passed from kind of the end of your cycle. Um, this is where you kind of might feel quite good in the gym. You might feel quite motivated to train towards the end of that week and then into the second week you may feel like you're stronger your recovery is better and this is because your body is basically you know in more of a steady steady state in terms of hormones in this period it would be good to kind of consider an iron supplement and vitamin c iron for obvious reasons particularly in that first week of your of your cycle in that zero to seven days that would be a, a good supplement to consider then as we go through into the late follicular phase you might experience even more strength you might experience better muscle recovery you might be even more motivated better intensity at workouts you're, this is when you may feel you know almost like your your best of, of the month right you might feel mood wise and motivation wise your best possibly appetite is typically lower however this is the important thing in terms of strength in the gym and training and stuff, there's only been four studies, four, like in the entire world ever, completely, you know, ever, four studies into strength training in female athletes across the month, four. And there's been zero 
in strength and endurance training. Crazy, isn't it? You think how many studies have been done in males across there, across a month, across a, across a year. Hundreds, probably thousands, right? It's completely biased. So let's chat about the luteal phase. So day 14 to day 21, this is when, obviously we have ovulation in the middle, guys. And then day 14 to 21, kind of the third quarter, if you like, um, we're likely to experience increased body temperature. Your resting and um, metabolic rate is likely to increase. So basically the calories you burn doing nothing. So if you remember the way that our body uses energy, it's um, RMR or um, BMR, so basal metabolic rate, just the energy you burn doing nothing, that's 70% if you just lay down all day. Then you've got the energy you use to move, the energy you use to digest, and the energy you use to exercise, right? Those are the four ways that we use energy in our body. The one that just, is just happening all the time, for, for just in the body, that it likely increases by about 10%, which for most of you will be about 100 to 250 calories. So in this kind of um, phase, so in week kind of three going into week four, as you can kind of see that hormonal peak and, and then dip, it may be worth kind of looking at increasing your calories by a little bit if you're tracking calories because hung, pretty soon hunger's then going to kick in for a lot of people. So in that last quarter, progesterone drops um, and because progesterone um, drops, we can kind of um, notice differences in serotonin in the brain. Um, sorry, because estrogen drops, we can notice um, differences in serotonin in the brain. Basically, you're going to want a nice kick from, from some good, feel-good food, right? You're going to be looking for kind of usually highly palatable, lower nutrient, um, more sugary, more processed foods. You're going to be looking for a bit of a kick from those, right? So be wary of that. Know that it's it's quite likely to happen. Um, and that is link, a link with serotonin and a drop in estrogen. Okay, when progesterone um, increases in this in this bit, this can kind of um, have an impact on your appetite as well and your cha changes in your hunger response and insulin sensitivity. So basically, what I'm trying to say is cravings are going to kick in at some point here, right? End of week three into week four, cravings are really likely to kick in. You're going to feel hungrier. You're going to be burning more calories. You're going to want highly palatable foods, right? Basically, of course, that can then, if you kind of, um, have those cravings and you eat those foods that can then have an impact on your blood sugar which is going to make you want more and more and more and therefore it's a bit of a dangerous cycle so out of all that information about the menstrual cycle what can you actually go and do and put in place so one to two weeks before your period week your hunger may increase you might want to put um, some more food into your into your week right it's good to manage hunger through increasing food volume during this time increase fiber you may choose to decrease the intensity of your exercise because, again, like we said, intensity, recovery, motivation is higher in the first two weeks, typically. Again, typically. In the second two weeks, it's typically a bit lower. So if you are someone who's trying to build muscle or get fitter or stronger or faster, getting most of your high-intensity, high-weight training in the first two weeks after your cycle is likely to be beneficial, and then tapering it off into week three at the end of week three into week four is likely to help recovery is likely to be better get some more light movement in add in a few more rest days try and get a little bit more sleep in this time if you can obviously be very very conscious of your stress management because of those fluctuations in hormones we can see an impact on our mood on our stress management things like that so you can put things in place like mindfulness practices stress and sleep become even more of a focus and that's really it guys those are like the main considerations as we said during your period week maybe a vitamin c and an iron supplement could go down quite well could have an impact 
to be honest, I use my supplements literally as an insurance policy to kind of cover the cracks that I may not get through my diet. So I eat a very good diet typically, but I still have a multivitamin to cover you know any little bits that I don't quite don't quite get to because I I, I value that. Um, but that's it. That is the menstrual cycle kind of in as quick of a nutshell as we can put it. And that was about twenty minutes. So let's move on then, guys. Can you before we um, do move on, pop in the chat one thing that you took away from that for me. So just one thing that you might go away and put in place, something you didn't realize, something that you knew that you feel other people should know, just one takeaway, pop it in the chat. There's a few people watching, so I want comments from that many people, please. Thank you. Right, so let's go into PCOS. Now again, I'm gonna to stick to the script on this one because I wanna make sure I get all the details right. So this stands for, as you, yeah, we all know what PCOS is most likely, polycystic ovary syndrome, or sometimes polycystic ovarian syndrome. It, it, People use different words. Again, different countries use different phrases. The big thing to know here is it's not just about the ovaries, okay? It's not just about the egg in the, in the follicles and the ovaries. It's not just about that. It has a huge impact on so many different parts of your health. It will, in, your life, in, in their lifetime, affect one in eight women. And again, bad news on this one. It's relatively poorly understood. Because of the because of the male bias in science, because the if you just joined us, you didn't see the first bit. Only two point five percent of public government funding for medical studies is given to to uh, reproductive health generally, which is crazy, isn't it? So female um, health is very very poorly understood generally speaking. Eight out of ten biology studies are done on males, male bodies, male cells, male animals. Only two out of ten are, are done on females. So you can see why this is so poorly understood. You know, it's not right at all, of course, but you can see why. So, um, PCOS can lead indirectly to weight gain. I'm gonna explain this in a little, little bit more detail for me. Awesome, Christy, I'm gonna read that one out in a second. Awesome, well done for posting your takeaway. Guys, there's more of you watching, post your takeaways. What have you taken already from today's session? So it can indirectly lead to weight gain. However, to gain weight, we need to be in a calorie surplus. To lose weight, we need to be in a calorie deficit. PCOS, the menopause, the menstrual cycle, can all make it more difficult to adhere to a calorie deficit or to manage your energy intake because of lots of different things. Hormones, impacts on mood, um, impacts on how much you move, all those other kind of indirect um, influences that it can have. It may be associated with a higher risk of depression, anxiety, type two diabetes, and obviously the big one, infertility. It's very, very difficult, as I'm, I'm sure you guys know way more about this than I do. Um, and if I miss anything, pop it in the chat. You know, let's share our experience and our knowledge. Um, it's, it's very, very difficult to diagnose. And because of this, it's most, most, um, it's more likely to be misdiagnosed. So there are a few kind of different um, ways that we can diagnose PCOS. And there are basically, it's complicated. There's four main types. And those four main types are obviously like combinations of different um, one different um, symptoms of that I'm about to say, okay? This is massively individual. If we took 100 people with PCOS, you can, PC, PCOS, I'm saying that right. You can see already between those 100 people, they would all fit into four different types of PCOS. So you've got lots of different symptoms, lots of different impacts. And between those people, they'll have individual physiologies and individual kind of impacts on them personally. It doesn't necessarily come. Uh, it doesn't necessarily 
always present with weight gain. They have what they've coined lean PCOS, okay? So lean PCOS is where there isn't a presentation of um, kind of weight, you know, quite rapid weight gain. Doesn't always mean, doesn't always come from, you know, I gain weight, I have another symptom, therefore I have PCOS, okay? There are three symptoms. We need to use the Rotterdam criteria, and doctors do, um, mostly now, not everyone, but mostly, it's quite widely accepted. And out of these three criteria, two need to be present for a diagnosis of a PCOS to be confirmed. That is irregular menstrual cycles, so usually more than 35 or less than 21 days. Um, hirsutism, hirsutism, sorry, hirsutism, lots of complicated words here, um, which is basically, you know, the presentation of kind of, um, or the impact of higher testosterone and androgens in the blood, which may be kind of a male pattern, body and facial hair, maybe adult acne, you know, things like that. So an influence from testosterone on, on the female body. Um, polycystic ovaries, obviously, on an ultrasound. And this is typically categorized of by 12 or more follicles per ovary, okay? And those are the three three criteria and to, to be diagnosed, it should be two out of three of those. That's the latest. If you were diagnosed 10, 15, 20 years ago, they may have used different criteria and lots and lots of people are misdiagnosed, particularly people who, who present with lean PCOS because for years they used weight gain as one of the factors. However, weight gain is an indirect impact. It's not a diet, it's not a symptom. It's not a symptom to diagnose by, basically. So you can be, you can, you can suffer with lean PCOS. So hope that's all clear, guys. Let me know. Am I making sense on this? I'm trying to be very kind of specific. Let me know. So if you do have PCOS or you feel you may have PCOS, obviously go and see a healthcare practitioner. I am not a doctor. I'm not here to diagnose people. I'm here to tell you what the science is and to kind of advise you through this. I'm not here to diagnose anyone, okay? If you feel you may have any of these symptoms or two or three, go and see a doctor and you may have type A, B, C, D, PCOS, okay? But go you know, go and see a professional. I, I am not a healthcare professional. I'm a nutrition professional. So some impacts of PCOS, weight loss may be difficult because of insulin resistance. So our cells can become desensitized to insulin, but as always, there are some really easy things that we can put in place. If we, re if we resign ourselves, and unfortunately this happens to a lot of people, we resign ourselves to the fact that we have PCOS um, and therefore we are just gonna gain weight. If, you, we, if we kind of resign ourselves to that, we are missing an opportunity to change many, <clears throat> many, many, of the symptoms and many, many of the health impacts. PCOS doesn't need to mean that we have all the other things that indirectly come with it, okay? We can manage it. And this can be done um, through primarily weight management because lots of the impacts come from um, higher levels of body fat or obesity with PCOS. So the main thing that we're looking for here is how can we manage our, not our bloody sugar levels, our blood sugar levels, how can we manage our blood sugar levels? Because we may be more insulin resistant, we need to think, right, I need to keep my blood sugar steady, I need to help my body. My body's gonna struggle to regulate high um, blood sugar levels, so I need to give it a hand, I need to help it with this, right? So what can we do? All the basics, the five foundations first and foremost, okay? Good night's sleep, drinking enough, enough fruits and veggies, taking time for you to de-stress and movement. I have taken years to construct those five foundations and figure out what's important, what's not important. Those five foundations will help 
99.9% of people with their physical and mental health, no matter what health conditions you're dealing with. Okay, that's why they're so important. So broad balanced diet, we could, if we want to get more specific, look at kind of um, a plant-based diet. Now, this doesn't mean vegan or vegetarian. This just means most of your food coming from plants. My diet is plant-based, but I eat meat and dairy. Um, moderating carbohydrates. So the carbohydrates that you do have, try to look at them as mostly low GI sources. So what we mean by GI is the impact that those carbohydrates have on your blood sugar. So things like um, whole grains, whole wheat pasta, um, brown rice, or, 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 or even just rice is okay. Slightly higher GI, but it's absolutely fine. Bread isn't gonna be something you need to cut out. You don't need to cut out carbs if you have PCOS. A very common prescription from doctors is don't eat carbohydrate. However, doctors spend less time than I have studying nutrition, which is quite a scary thought, right? In their many years to become a GP, they studied nutrition for much less than I have. I can't remember how long it was. I did speak to a doctor about this, but it's ridiculously low. It's like a handful of modules that they study nutrition for. And considering nutrition is our first defense against health issues, you'd think it'd be higher. Anyway, lots of doctors are still to this day saying you need to cut out carbs or go very, very, very low carb. You do not need to. Carbohydrates impact on the blood sugar in different ways. So if we have more complex carbohydrates, so lower GI, you can literally Google guys, this is quite safe to Google. I would go on examine.com though, low GI carbohydrates. You'll notice it is what we would say healthy carbs, right? So more complex, more natural, more whole food sources of carbohydrate. So not Haribo, chocolate, alcohol, um, sweets, table sugar, you know, not that stuff. That's high GI because it's simple carbs. It's going to spike your blood sugar, which is fine in moderation. You can have bits and bobs throughout your diet. No worries at all. But if you are struggling with PCOS, maybe think about more low GI sources. So we'll just kind of run through them there. You, you get the picture. You know what I'm talking about. To help with that, to help keep your blood sugar stable and to help with your cellular health, your brain health, that kind of stuff, think about adding some more healthy fats into your diet. Olives, olive oil, nuts, seeds, fish, um, avocado, healthy fats, okay? These are monounsaturated fats. We know them as like the healthy fats, right? Include more of those and obviously start to reduce things down like, um, I'm not saying cut them out, but just reduce them down like, you know, sugar, Haribo, sweets, chocolate, um, crisps, things like that. The obvious things to do, right? This is all, nothing here is groundbreaking. Moderate your protein intake, so not low protein, have moderate to, to low high protein, so um, moderate to high protein. Basically around whole foods, cut down your, minimal, your, your processed foods, bring down how many kind of um, sweets and crisps and cookies and biscuits you're eating, and increase your exercise. Increased exercise can help you increase your insulin sensitivity. Think of it like this. You're using an, an energy system in your body, you go and exercise, your body goes, oh, right, okay, I need to stabilize blood sugar. Cool, where's the insulin at? Cool, right, let's, let's get that in here. So your body gets basically sensitized, resensitized to it because it's using it in the proper way. Okay, hope that makes sense. So exercise helps you manage your insulin sensitivity. Right, guys, nearly done. Pop in the chat before we move on to the menopause, pop in the chat what you've taken away from today. I will get this under 45 minutes, don't worry. Pop in the chat from that section on um, PCOS. Let me know what you've taken away. It's all quite straightforward when you think about what we actually need to put in place. Now, the menopause. It's, again, not very well understood. 
it's not very well researched, but essentially you're gonna spend over a third of your life in a peri, so before or around, and so before with the menopause, um, in a peri or a menopausal place, okay? Your body will be peri or menopausal for over a third of your life. That's a huge number of years, okay? So we need to make sure that we understand what's likely to happen and what we can do about it. Again, before we go any further, the five foundations are gonna be the key, and a broad and balanced diet with some moderate exercise is going to be the key. Without those things, there's no point in looking at um, HRT, hormonal replacement therapy. There's no point in looking at any kind of uh, medication or anything like that, unless you've got those basics in place. Those five foundations will always be the base. So this, if this happens, you know, there's a clear correlation as to why this happens. It's a decrease in estrogen, right? But it's still not fully understood why that decrease happens. Is it because we're living longer and therefore our physiologies aren't kind of um, basically made to live as long as we're living. So we're, you know, when we think about kind of what the body's made for, it's made for reproduction, right? That's kind of our primary function. So maybe we're living longer than our, we're, we're clearly living longer than our reproductive years. So maybe our body hasn't quite evolved. They are seeing that the age of menopause is starting to move backwards. So basically the years that we're able to reproduce for are becoming slightly longer. So that kind of tracks with that. It's probably because of that, right? Where our life expectancy has has increased quicker than our our ability to evolve to that, right? But it is happening very obviously, very 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 slowly. So so classic symptoms of menopause: hot flushes. We're going to tell you what we can do about those. Night sweats, kind of very closely linked, obviously. Difficulty sleeping, waking up, falling asleep, um, kind of on and off, very kind of um, episodic sleep. So in and out of sleep having very, very low mood, um, potentially um, dipping into kind of depression. Anxiety can be very increased. Of course, reduced libido. We think about this. All, the, I, lo I, love, I love the body and the physiology because it, it's quite a logical thing most of the time. Like, you know, we are no longer, um, our bodies aren't kind of um, in a place to reproduce. What does the body do? It decreases libido, right? It's so clever. It's so, so clever. Um, and of course, um, lots and lots of impacts, similar to kind of perinatal, really, around in and around pregnancy, lots of cognitive impacts and impacts on memory and um, brain function, loads of different impacts like that, on that, sorry. So what can we do? Last slide here, guys, what can we actually do? Of course, we can look at HRT. Now, HRT, hormonal replacement therapy, has been in and out of favor since the year, two, well, before 2000, but mainly since 2000. Around that time, there were studies done that showed a link between HRT and breast cancer. However, things have been changed, things are, have advanced a lot, and now it's coming quite back into favor with doctors and practitioners, okay? Because they've, I don't know exactly what, but it's changed in the way that it's delivered and, it, and, it's, and it's basically, they've minimized the link between HRT and, and breast cancer. So there's two main types. We can have estrogen and progesterone combined, so combined HRT, or we can have um, estrogen only HRT, okay? Very, very simple there. Despite any kind of um, medication or medical interventions, there are lots of basics that we can do to help with the menopause. Again, a plant-based diet, that's not saying vegan or vegetarian, but most of your diet coming from plants can help for obvious reasons. Vitamins, minerals, fiber, all that goodness is gonna make sense, right? Some other things that we can do to, some other things that we can add in, sorry, to help. 
could be things like soya beans and products from that, tofu and, and, and things like that. Um, legumes, lentils, chickpeas, loads and loads of fruits and veggies. These can help with some of the symptoms. If you're experiencing hot flushes, if you're experiencing night sweats, if if you think about how many stimulants you have during the day, there, you know, it, it, it's gonna be quite a, quite a clear link between I have four coffees, I'm up all night, or I'm having night sweats and things, right? And other stimulants that will have an impact on hot flushes and night sweats are things like, um, again, caffeine, so coffee, um, mainly for most people, but even tea and chocolate has a small amount in it, to be honest, and Coca-Cola, obviously, and things like that. Um, alcohol, chocolate, and spicy foods. Spicy foods needs no explaining on that one, okay? So these are all stimulants of the body. They may impact on hot flushes and night sweats. Other things that we can do, we can minimize highly processed foods, um, and this kind of links in. There are some links with like IBS and the menopause as well, or just digestive issues in the menopause. So a broad balanced diet is obviously gonna help this. Obviously, if you experience any intolerances or sensitivities for food, trying an exclusion diet, so cutting that food, nothing else, just that one food, cutting it out for two to four weeks, seeing how the body responds, slowly reintroducing it just to double check that it is that thing reintroducing it slowly may in fact kind of help dissipate any symptoms but if you are going to do an exclusion diet if you feel you've got sensitivity don't cut more than one thing out because you won't know what the what helped it basically again we can't gain weight pcos on the menstrual through the menstrual cycle or during menopause we can't gain weight unless we're in a calorie surplus our body cannot create energy, right? We have what we call the law of thermodynamics. It's the same level as the law of gravity. So pretty, pretty solid law. Um, and the law of the, the first law of thermodynamics basically says that you are a closed energy system. And we know through our teaching of science that we can't, cre uh, we can't create or destroy energy. We can just convert it from one thing to another, right? For example, we can convert kinetic energy through from wind to um, heat energy, um, sorry, to kinetic energy in a wind turbine and therefore into kind of, um, into electrical energy, right? So we know that we convert it. And in the body, same thing applies. We're a closed system. We can't create or destroy energy. So we can convert our energy from the food we use through heat and movement and, and, we, and we can convert into those two types. So we can't kind of destroy or, or, or create it. So what I'm trying to say is if you are not in a calorie surplus, if you're not overeating, you will not gain weight. That's it, that's the bottom line. Again, another thing you can do just to finish this off guys, try and moderate your, um, try and have a good, decent, moderate to higher protein intake. This can help to help to offset things like sarcopenia and osteoporosis, so muscle and bone wastage. As you get older, muscle and bone wastage can kick in. In fact, if you are a very sedentary person, it can kick in quite worryingly early, unless you're kind of resistance training to some degree and having a decent protein intake, this can happen pretty early in our life. So, you know, exercise, resistance train, have a moderate to high protein intake, and that's gonna help offset those two. And that, guys, is it. That is a very quick, look at that, 44-40, under 45 minutes to talk you through three massive areas of uh, women's health. I'm quite impressed I managed to get through all that. Please let me know what is a main takeaway. Christy's got some really good points here. I know we've got a few more people watching who are not commenting. Please post because there are going to be people who come after you who can look at the comments and get a really quick snapshot as to what the main learns were from today. And that is invaluable, guys. Remember, we're a community. We need to work together. So post into the comments one thing that you took away from that, please. Also, I can see who you are. Um, we've got uh, Christy says... 
Um, some really good tips there. Thinking about increasing fruit and veg intake and knowing exercise helps um, with insulin. Yeah, definitely. Really, really important. If you ever feel like you may be insulin resistant, of course, doctor, healthcare practitioner. However, exercise will clear, very, very, very quickly help to um, help to kind of change that. Um, Christy says, um, tracking the cycle is definitely something I need to look at doing. Absolutely. When you, I didn't actually mention that, did I? That's, that's really bad of me. That's like the main takeaway from the, the menstrual bit. Sorry. Um, when you start to understand your own phases and what the menstrual cycle looks for you, roughly how many days it is, and get, guys, you, you get apps that you can really easily tap on to kind of help you with this. Um, once you kind of start to get a really good grasp on your menstrual cycle in terms of the days, in terms of your cravings, your changes in hormones, you can then seek to kind of change bits. So you can seek to change your diet, your sleep, your stress um, management regime and routine. But you need to kind of have a really good grasp on, on your cycle first before you can look at that. So writing it down, tracking your cravings, tracking even kind of discomfort and abdominal pain, tracking motivation, tracking your mood, everything. If you write it down, you're going to have, you know, you're going to have it there. What gets measured gets managed, right? So make sure you measure it and you write it down. Right, team, we are going to finish up there. Please do pop in the comments what you've taken away from today's session and everyone who comes after you to watch this on playback is going to benefit. Thank you very much for joining me today and I'll catch up with you guys very, very soon. Take care, team.